Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. How can Germany be an exploiter of the euro, Sir Howard, given the laws of the European Union? I don't think it is, in in that sense, an exploiter of the euro. What happened was that the Germans joined the euro at what many of them perceived to be an uncompetitive rate. And they thought that they had been uh, manipulated by the French, if you like, who agreed a rate that was too high for the Deutschmark. In the years following the introduction of the euro, the Germans then focused on productivity increases and wage discipline. The unions in, un- in Germany, worried about the impact of uncompetitiveness, agreed very, very tight wage deals, and German competitiveness improved dramatically. Many other countries in the eurozone seemed to take the view that having joined the eurozone, they couldn't have a balance of payments problem anymore, and therefore competitiveness wasn't really right. a problem. And wage rates rose... <clears throat> in Greece, in Spain, in Italy particularly, but also to some extent in France, and they became less competitive. Now, if you call that manipulation, uh, well, I think that's a rather difficult word to use about it. It does, however, mean that the Germans are now operating with a currency which is an average currency for Germany, Italy, Greece, Spain, etc., which is certainly lower than it would be if it was just Germany, Austria and the Netherlands. That is certainly true. When you look back 20 and 30 bit years, back to the time of Greenspan, Rubin and Summers, is the U.S. the ultimate manipulator of their exorbitant privilege? I think that these uh, loaded words like manipulation and illegal, etc., are really not a helpful way of thinking about this. Uh, Barry Eichengreen coined the phrase exorbitant privilege of being reserved currency, and that to some extent is true because it does mean, you know, the traditional phrase, the the dollar is is, uh, our currency but your problem is typically what Fred Treasury secretaries have said to people. But I think that is just a fact that it is the global reserve currency and that gives you certain freedoms, if you like, in terms of the way you handle your own monetary policy. People don't have a choice but to own dollar assets and that creates a kind of underpinning for you but then to turn that round and use words like manipulation that people are doing this deliberately i just don't think that's the way policymakers think about it how disruptive will donald trump's presidency be for european elections this year well um it's i'm not sure how disruptive it will be european elections it certainly is causing european leaders to think about how they come together in response to what they do perceive clearly more, more so than here as a, as a threat. So I think you will see more pressure for common European positions being taken, whether that will really read across into the individual elections where I think there's a lot more national things going on. So do you worry about uh, Marine Le Pen becoming president of France? There are fresh allegations against François Fillon. We now have a latest poll saying actually Emmanuel Macron, the independent who used to be finance minister under uh, Monsieur Hollande, may actually um, win 
and go to the second round. What happens if we get a Emmanuel Macron, a Marine Le Pen standoff? Yeah, I think this is quite worrying. Until recently, I thought that Fillon was likely to win and that he would appeal to a lot of the kind of traditional gaullist and blue-collar people who were flirting with Marine Le Pen. But we've now come across uh, what I think of as Welsh wife risk, um, which has uh, appeared in the case of Fillon, and that has unsettled things. Macron, uh, obviously, very plausible sort of guy, but with no political roots whatsoever, never been elected to anything. So I think that the idea of him in the second round versus Marine Le Pen is a big throw of the dice because he's got no party uh, to back him except his small organisation called En Marche. He doesn't have any kind of tradition. How would he behave in a big campaign? I think this is a big throw of the dice. I would be much more comfortable if it were Le Pen against either Fillon or if he has to pull out back maybe to Juppé. Okay, what happens if Marine Le Pen gets elected president? And I, I don't know whether that's at the moment a, a 10% chance or a 50% chance in your eyes. I think it is very serious indeed for the Euro uh, project in total. Uh, because although she has been a bit cautious about saying she wants to come out of the European Union, she wants to come out of the euro, and I think that the European project would be in big trouble. I cannot see Mrs Merkel wanting to stand there in a press conference uh, with Marine Le Pen talking about how the Franco-German alliance is going to be re-established. That just won't happen. So I think that's a, 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 an existential threat to the European project in total in the way that Brexit is not. Sir Howard, when we look at all that we're talking about, of populism and of political turmoil, our markets, and I go to John Plender and the FT today, our markets just wildly betting on the advantages of a Trump reflation? Or is a Trump reflation literally, to use the British phrase, a money illusion? Well, I think probably there will be a Trump reflation in the form of lower corporate taxation and eventually some infrastructure spending, though whether there are enough shovel-ready projects for that to be uh, a big factor in the short run, I don't know. So I don't think it's a complete money illusion, but maybe at the moment people are putting too much emphasis on that side of the Trump presidency and perhaps too little on the trade risks. You know, I look, Sir Howard, at, at all that's going on and the idea of a Trump reflation. Help me here with what Janet Yellen should do. I mean, if we, we forget almost, Francine, I've never seen this, where we've in so much way ignored a Fed decision as yeah. we do at 2 p.m. Yeah. today. All my radar is up uh, on that. Sir Howard, help me here with the response of a leading economist in Chair Yellen to all that's going on in Washington. Well, I think the Fed will be asking itself whether the Trump reflation will really occur and whether there will be a corresponding depressing offset on economic growth from worries about trade policy. So that, to me, if I were the Fed, would cause me to wish to hold my fire for the time being and not to take it as for granted that we are going to see the economy growing more rapidly and therefore that they can raise rates quickly. So I would expect the Fed to uh, yeah. adopt a wait-and-see posture for the moment. And I think those factors will be what's in their mind. Francine, here's the Trump reflation right now very quickly. The election, the day after the election, up we go. We've shown this chart too many times. And Francine, here's this indeterminate churn uh, right now that Chair Yellen faces this, this afternoon. 
Yeah, and Sir Howard, going back to what you were saying, looking at Tom's chart and actually bringing the, the dot plot up on the Bloomberg terminal, it would seem... Ooh, outdoing right, me! Once again, you see that? Tom, you see that? Is that we started the year where there was an alignment between what the dots were telling us yes. and the Fed fund futures, but it, no longer. The Feds are still saying three to four, and actually the Fed funds are saying two interest rate hikes. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's not surprising because I think what I've been saying, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, is that people are now starting to just try to, to weigh yeah. up the totality of, uh, of a Trump presidency. I think in the first week they were saying, well, it's all going to be about reflation, we're going to see the dollar rising and everything, and now people are saying, well, maybe there are some serious threats on the horizon on the trade policy front that that might create a bit of grinding of gears, even if, you know, eventually you get to a more rational outcome, but in the short run that could be somewhat disruptive. Thank you so much, Sir Howard Davis. What a great, great interview with the RBS chairman there. Gene Munster with us, Loop Ventures. Of course, more than iconic at Piper Jaffrey. What, what is Loop Ventures? How is it different than the day-to-day -day grind at Fortress Piper? Uh, from a day to day, I'm still doing research. So I'm head of research, so I still write three research notes. You still a week. stand out in front of Apple stores? Oh yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we we do that. It's not every day, Tom. We do that, but I'd say maybe once a month. Once a month, <laughs> you're out there looking at what's uh, uh, going on. Help me here with what I need to know about Apple's balance sheet. I look at the lack of goodwill. It's 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 the most unique balance sheet I've ever seen. Why is that? Well, because they have a lot of cash, first of all, call it $220 billion. They have a lot of debt, too, call it 60 or $70 billion. 11 or 12 percent. I don't know, you know what that, the average cost That's correct. Yeah. And they have uh, a, a boatload of that debt is outside of the U.S. And so if you look at the or boatload of that cash is, so if you look at the total cash outside the U.S., it's probably 100 to $110 billion. And so uh, that's net of debt. So there's, there's a, a big chunk that's offshore. They sold three and a half million more iPhones to new customers. Who who are these new customers buying these phones, and, and how is uh, how, how many more can they recruit to, to the Apple world? Well, some of them came from Samsung. Samsung obviously had a tough uh, fall here, so they probably picked up about half of those from Samsung people, and they still are getting uh, growth in emerging markets. And China mainland was flat year over year. Uh, the Brazil was particularly strong, so they pick up that. I think you're getting to a bigger question around the story, which is, is this really a growing market? Yeah. And the answer is that it's not. The smartphone market doesn't grow, um, and Apple knows that. And that's why they're talking about things like augmented reality and, and these shift towards wearables. Yeah. David, just so you know, the augmented reality is we're trying to break a record and get to 24 Apple products in our house. <laughs> That's our augmented reality. What it, define it for us. What is augmented reality? We know virtual reality. What's augmented reality? And what's, Apple, what's Apple's game plan for it? So it's superimposing um, things onto the real world. And so it's like Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go, exactly. Okay. But, but something that would be much more advanced and more usable than what I think is a clumsy game, but that's a great example. <laughs> How is Apple's approach different from, say, Google's approach to augmented reality? You have these big companies getting into this space. What is each doing differently? Apple's going to position this more as a hardware play. Uh -huh. uh, Google seems to be, they had Google Glass that failed, and their new efforts, they've restarted it. Now it's kind of uh, under wraps. 
but they also have a significant investment in this company, Magically, which is a very controversial company, but a lot of high expectations, but Google is one of the majority investors in that. And so Apple's approach is to build the hardware themselves, and they just uh, filed a couple patents last week around augmented reality and wearables, and Google's approach appears to be more partnering. Our colleague Shira Ovide, who writes for Bloomberg Gadfly, had a column yesterday uh, looking at the Apple results, saying that uh, you can draw the comparison here to Walmart, and she sort of wondered what Steve Jobs would think about that comparison when you look at growth, when you look at the balance sheet. Uh, what, what is it that's going to kickstart growth for, for Apple again to get back, can it get back to where it was, to the kind of growth that it saw uh, before? There can be some periods where growth is going to be much quicker. And so, for example, this fall, when we come into the iPhone 10, there's going to be a large pool of 300 million plus people with really old phones, and that's going to drive growth should step up at that point. Uh, then they'll come out with a foldable phone probably in the next three to five years. And so think of it as having a phone the same size that you have today, but then you could fold it open. It could be a small iPad. Uh, that will be good for growth, but it still doesn't change the long-term trajectory. The car is what's needed uh, and, and the new Apple forms or, or wearables, yeah. whether it's uh, yeah something along those two. And David Shearer's comment is really important in terms of this desire for growth. General Mills, which is the ultimate basic company, has returned 11.7% per year for the last 10 years. Yeah. Apple can be, am I right, Gene? Apple can be a General Mills and still mint money for shareholders? Yes, and I, I think you're going to see that when, and even more when they report their March quarter and talk about capital allocation and buyback and, and dividends. So, I remember reading you know, Bloomberg reporting on Apple's uh, return to services, hoping to improve the services they offer. It seems like yesterday was a, a good moment for the, the Apple portfolio of services. Uh, are you satisfied with how well they've done turning that around? Is there still room for them to, to make more improvements? Services is a big deal. When we yeah. look at kind of the, the Apple model for the next five years, the growth is going to come from services. So the iPhone is going to kind of ebb and flow. But services is going to go from, call it a <clears throat> $20 billion business this year to probably a $45 billion business wow. in 2020. Right now, Apple services business is about the same size as Facebook, not growing as fast. But so sort of when you put all of this together and look at the profitability, which is much higher, services is an, a critical part to the Apple story longer term. And they need to embrace it even more aggressively than they are today. So quick question about Google and, and, uh, and AI. How far have they gone toward monetizing that? In other words, you, you have the innovation part of things. Uh, is, the is the monetization side of things uh, close behind? It's, it's slowly starting. And think of AI. Google said on their uh, last conference call that they're going to be an AI-first company. They're a mobile-first company. They, they're going to become AI-first. And they talked about 350 AI innovations in the quarter. And what this will be is, in terms of monetizing it, it's not going to be like an AI product that you're going to download. Right. And it's going to be the existing products you have are just going to get smarter and you're going to mm. use them more. Okay, Gene, if you forget your Apple ID, so if the kid wants to download apps on their iPod, but they can't do it because I forgot my Apple ID, what do I do? Well, you do a... A, a reset, an ID reset, and eventually you're going to probably come up against uh, some password problems. So the good news with Apple is you can, they actually have real uh, support, real tech support around their <laughs> services, and you can call somebody and they'll There's a question you needed to get from Gene Munster, Haloop Ventures. Gene, thank you so much. Thank you. We continue. This is Bloomberg.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. We are pleased to bring you worldwide, Barry Eichengreen. Professor, good morning. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm very good. President Trump has an exorbitant privilege, which is I guess he can talk anytime, 24-7, on dollar strength, dollar policy, dollar weakness. What is the Eichengreen prescription for any president to do when discussing the U.S. dollar? Uh, To hold his fire, basically. Um, I think the term strong dollar policy has been unfortunate. It's really code for uh, don't comment on the dollar because the exchange rate is the single most important price in the economy. And a random tweet can drive it up or down. Do you, do you, so help us with that term, a term that is thrown around so much, strong dollar policy, goes back to Bob Rubin, of course. Are we, are we seeing a change here in policy, do you think, when it comes to the dollar? I don't think policy has been defined yet, but we are seeing much more uncertainty around uh, policy. We don't know whether uh, Mr. Trump will tell his Treasury Department to intervene in the foreign exchange market. We don't know whether the, the administration will jawbone the Fed to adjust policy in ways with the with implications for the dollar or not. All we know for sure is that everything is on the table conceivably at this point. Everything's on the table. Uh, we Tom mentioned there that that came came via. Uh, Twitter. Uh, what have you learned here over the last few days? It's hard to believe it's just been about a week plus of this administration. But what's your takeaway from the, this this first week? The clear takeaway is that something big is likely to happen on the trade policy front. Um, getting corporate tax reform is going to be hard. Getting individual income tax reform is going to be harder. Getting uh, big infrastructure packages going to be harder still. All of those things require cooperation with the Congress, which is time-consuming and can't be taken for granted. Trade policy is the one place where the president, if he grows impatient, can move unilaterally. I think that's what we've seen. Going back to your wonderful, and folks, this is a fabulous short read, Globalizing Capital, where Barry Eichengreen talks about the many shades of globalization, starting with a gold standard and, and moving forward from there. I can't say enough about the effort. If you were to write a chapter eight, you go chapter five, Bretton Woods, chapter six, a brave new monetary world. You end up with a conclusion. If you needed to write a back chapter on the back end for Mr. Trump to read, what would your new chapter be? Look for the third edition in 20, 2018, Tom. Thank you. Um, I think uh, we have learned over and over again that uh, flexible exchange rates are the worst alternative except for all the others. We have to learn to live with this world, and uh, what it implies for Trump is Mm -hmm. that everything that he is contemplating from expansionary fiscal policy to trade protectionism to uh, a destination-based corporate uh, tax reform is apt to drive the dollar up uh, significantly and frustrate his own uh, intentions. I don't think there is any way around that other than to try to moderate a little bit those extreme policy initiatives. 
Um, quickly question here just about about that trade policy. Are we are, are you any more confident in what the shape of that policy is going to be? As you said, it's going to be a big event here. We're going to see something happen with it. Do you have a better sense of what it's going to look like? No, I don't think any of us do, but I think there's some more uh, obvious targets than others. Uh, Mexico is an obvious target. China, less so, because China is a, uh, a very large economy with geopolitical reach, and Germany, even less so, even though Germany mm. has a big external surplus, it does not have its own currency, as Mrs. Merkel reminded uh, Mr. Trump in the world, it, that makes uh, Germany a, a more well, difficult, problematic target. Uh, Professor, I, I, I look at, I think of Douglas Irwin at Dartmouth's work on mercantilism and zero sum and the phrases thrown around right now. Are we working our way back to a colonial world? Are we becoming inward and a more closed economy, like an autarky again? Are we doing that? I think what what's happening is that the age of hyper-globalization, when cross-border trade and finance were growing faster than everything else is over, if we follow sensible policies, we don't have to have regress from here. The word you use, Tom, that's on point is mercantilism. If you look at the Peter Navarro, Wilbur Ross document from the fall or their Financial Times column, it was all about imports bad, exports good. And that's classic mercantilism, which we know can be good politics, but is bad economics. It's not, however, zero sum. It's negative sum once we get into trade warfare and retaliation and breaking up global supply chains and so forth. When I look at the game theory that will occur, you are the student of the mistakes we made in the 30s, beginning with Golden Fetters years ago and the work through the International Monetary Fund. When someone says to you, does this harken back to 1930s regionalism in block thinking, are they right? They are right, and they ought to focus on two risks that developed in the 1930s. Number one, when the U.S. slapped on the Smoot-Hawley tariff, we destroyed the financial position of emerging markets, basically. Indebted countries couldn't earn the dollars to pay back what they borrowed, and that then collapsed the global financial system. So if uh, we have a Trump tariff and a strong rise in the dollar, that could happen again. Number two, Trade conflict spilled over into other forms of geopolitical conflict. It made it much harder for countries to cooperate in opposition to rising threats like that from the Third Reich. So I, I, I worry as well about how trade tension could spill over into other tension as it did in the 1930s. You mentioned that uh, Navarro piece in the FT, and, and I wonder sort of what the, the takeaway is from the commentary he made there about the euro. We saw the euro move. Uh, on the release of that that column in in the FT, he talked about the uh, uh, sort of uh, de facto Deutsche Mark. I'm, I'm misquoting it there, but uh, you know that the, that there is a, a a larger German role in the euro right now. What's your takeaway from that? What was the importance of that to you? Number one, it doesn't seem to me that Mr. Navarro really understands the euro, or how it's determined, or appreciates the fact that Germany does not have a central bank anymore but it does reflect that same mercantilist thinking that uh, we were talking about a moment ago. 
that Germany has an external surplus, therefore the inference follows erroneously that it must be part of the problem, even if there are other Eurozone countries who have external deficits and offset the German position, at least in part. What are you going to be uh, watching? We've talked about the upcoming elections in France and, and the Netherlands. Uh, you've spent some time in Europe recently. I think we last spoke to you. You were in Berlin. What are you going to be watching here in, in 2017 for indications or indicators uh, of, of the Eurozone's health? Well, first and foremost, growth. Uh, Europe has been dragged down economically and politically by a decade of stagnation. The Eurozone economy is doing better now in terms of growth. That's a big positive that not everybody yet appreciates. But number two, the banking system. Uh, uh, banks in Italy and Portugal and elsewhere are still a mess. The head of the European Banking Authority yesterday came out making the case for a Europe-wide bad bank to clean up the non-performing loans. If they actually make progress there, that would be a positive. Professor Eichengreen, I want you to launch into the debate that your colleague in crime, Brad DeLong, started, which is looking at NAFTA, looking at trade. And Danny Roderick at Harvard and Jared Bernstein, a wonderful economist uh, with Vice President Biden in, in, in Washington, saying that there was not enough emphasis on what it did to a select group of low-skill Americans. In hindsight, should we have had a much more overt uh, solution or prescription or cash treatment to these people that lost their jobs in NAFTA, in WTO? There's no question that the answer is yes. Uh, I do think, as does my colleague Brad DeLong, that it's mainly been technology and automation rather than NAFTA or China that has led to the decline in manufacturing employment. But in the United States, the Two sets of factors, trade and technology, have hit the same groups uh, of people in the same communities, uh, in the same traditionally labor-intensive manufacturing sectors. And to neglect the fact that they had been hit by both mm -hmm. barrels, I think, has led to this political backlash. And we should have been quicker to anticipate that and do something about mm -hmm. it. What do we need to see at G20 and G7 meetings in the coming months with the shock of populism in the developed economies? Number one, we need the Trump administration to show up. I think that would be helpful. And the, uh, the United States still needs to play a role if there's going to be any kind of concerted response to this decline and this rise in volatility and uh, uncertainty. Big exchange rate movements are going to cause troubles for a variety of G20 countries, but I don't think intervention a la the Plaza, Plaza and Louvre Accords from the 1980s is going to work. We need sensible policies in order to get sensible exchange rates. And uh, again, the G20 is a good talking right. shop for raising consciousness about that, but policies are made at home, including in Washington, D.C. Well, Professor Eichengreen, thank you so much. Good news. It, uh, we'll look for another edition of Exorbitant Privilege in uh, 18 months or so. I'll put that book out on social media. It was one of my uh, books of the summer a few years ago. Barry Eichengreen with the University of California at Berkeley.
Joining us now is truly one of the most interesting people in 20th century politics. His public service includes governor of Missouri. I believe he was a senator from Missouri. He was U.S. None of this matters. He brought Tony La Russa to the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. And that, that's what John Ashcroft uh, did, among other services. <laughs> Attorney General, wonderful to speak to you this morning. I would respectfully suggest, sir, that you were not as polarizing as our attorney general to be. Will Mr. Sessions polarize the dialogue so much that we will think of, say, an Ed Meese of another time? Well, first, I have great respect for uh, the attorney general designate. I think he's going to be a great attorney general because he believes in the rule of law. And I don't believe he'll be that polarizing. If you look at his record as a public servant, he last ran for public office in Alabama, and I believe he was unopposed on either the Democrat or the Republican ticket. It's hard to say that a person is really polarizing if he's so acceptable to people on the broad spectrum that he's unopposed in a race for the United States Senate. So I, I believe his dedication to the rule of law, the fact that he uh, sees his responsibility to inform the president exactly of what the law is on matters and to counsel him effectively there and to prosecute and administer the Justice Department based on the law, not based on the character of people making inquiry or the character of people who make offense. I think that will serve America well. So I don't see him as that polarizing. Help us understand the, the role of the attorney general vis-a-vis -vis what we saw over the weekend. We were speaking with Noah Feldman, the constitutional law scholar at Harvard University, columnist for Bloomberg View, and we were looking at Sally Yates' statement, uh, which she issued before the weekend. And he, she, he notes in his most recent column, she referred to the institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what is right. Help us understand what happened here uh, and whether or not you think uh, she was right in speaking out uh, uh, after that uh, immigration executive order was signed. Well, first of all, it's my understanding that the professionals at the Department of Justice determined that the executive order was in accordance with the law. And given what I know about the Immigration Act of 1965 and its amendments and Section 212 of that act, it looks like the president clearly has the authority. And it appears to me that she had a sense of justice that didn't make as its primary reference the rule of law, but, but concerns that she had personally. And uh, very frankly, it is the job of the attorney general to defend the position of the United States and its laws and the administration of the United yeah. States unless there isn't a legal argument in its favor. I remember on several occasions I was asked to do things in defense of policy, which I disagreed with profoundly. McCain-Feingold was uh, a campaign finance measure, which I thought offended the First Amendment of the Constitution. But I defended it as a matter of my duty well, because it was arguably defensible. And frankly, we defended it so well that it was right. sustained by the Supreme Court. Okay, this is not, and that happened in a number of cases. David, I want you to jump in here. You're smarter at this than I am. But this is not a 19th century discussion, folks. The attorney general is flat on his back in the hospital with pancreatitis. And you had two political guys for President Bush wanting you to take out the quill, dip in the ink and sign the document. Right, attorney general? Well, I really don't comment on 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 my counsel to to clients either in private or in public. Okay. But that that that's that's a report. If you're making reference to whether or not the attorney general has a responsibility to counsel honestly the administration, he does. And uh, 
he would disserve an administration if he would tell a president something is legal when it's not. And the idea somehow that if a, it would be, uh, uh, there's a danger in an, a, an attorney general who would collude with the president rather than tell him what's right and what's wrong would be to describe an attorney general who would not only betray the American people, but would betray the administration. No administration should want to do that which it has no authority to do. And an attorney general who is referenced to the rule of law has a profound duty to say to the president, this is outside the scope of your authority. And, and you know, there is a sense in which people sometimes want to uh, act to the limit of their power without reference to their authority. Mm. And the law describes their authority, and an attorney general should be very clear to say to whomever asks his opinion in the, in the federal government, this is certainly the level of your authority and you should not exceed your authority even if some, there is some way in which you have the power to do so. Help us with the historical import of what happened over the weekend and what do you think the message is for civil servants, those who have spent their careers at the Justice Department as they watched what unfolded over the weekend? Well, they have a duty like a lawyer has a duty to represent a client. Now, if a person in the private sector were to disagree with what his client was doing, in spite of the fact that it was legal, and were to decide to, rather than defend it in court, simply to walk away and not defend it, mm -hmm. that lawyer would be subject to disciplinary action by the Bar Association for failing to serve the client. Now, a person who believes that his own sense of justice is offended by doing something legal in behalf of his client has a duty either to go forward to represent the client, which lawyers do all the time, right. or else to resign. But the idea that somehow um, you as an attorney have the right to make a judgment uh, in favor uh, of your own personal preferences and against the interests of your yeah. client is bankrupt. And for a public, let me just make this one other point. I don't know how much time you have. This is a yeah. nuance. Please. But when, when you decide you're not going to represent the United States and defend its positions in the court, you're basically saying, I don't trust the court to come out of this case right. with something well, that is uh, congruent with my okay. personal opinion. John Ashcroft, we're gonna and, have to leave, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We so much want to get you back on again. There's too much to talk about uh, with the, uh, the former Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft, of course, of Missouri. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.